And we look to our Lord this morning in prayer. And our Father, what we want to do now is to be able to gain a sense of who you are, the greatness of who you are, majesty of who you are. You are sovereign. You are good. And you are in control. And we've put our faith and trust in you. It was Jesus that you had designed to be the one within the Trinity to go to that cross, to die in our place for our sins, and on that third day be raised from the dead. And here we have a Job in patriarchal times anticipating that moment. And he does so with incredible certainty. So I pray, Father, in this prelude to Easter this morning, on this Palm Sunday, commemorating the time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that we understand the significance of these days that unfold and how all this fits into your eternal plan. Praying once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills, again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. My college alumni magazine arrived, and there's an incredible interview that takes place between the president of my college, former college, and Andrew Brunson, who was held captive in Turkey for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the article begins that in the 30 years since he shared a floor in Traver Hall with Dr. Philip Riken, a lot has changed, says Andrew Brunson. Now, I'm a convicted terrorist, and he is president of Wheaton College. Well, the article goes on to say, the two shall share the stage at commencement next month, where Andrew and his wife are the featured speakers. And the couple's names are among the scores of alumni missionaries listed on the wall in Blanchard Hall. And now they are certainly among the most well-known. After Turkey imprisoned Andrew for two years on false terrorism charges, he was held in solitary confinement. The things that sustained him were words of perspective, such as from his lifelong mentor, uh, Wheaton's evangelism professor, Lyle Dorset, who had said, quote, You concentrate on the depth, and let God take care of the breadth of your life. And so by focusing on a deep relationship with God, at their little church in a quiet corner of western Turkey, Andrew and Noreen had an incredible testimony to share when it came time for their words to ricochet around the globe. For every media outlet wanted to hear their story after Andrew's October 2018 release. And the Brunson's faith in God was essential to this story. So we watched how the president and the vice president got involved in his release, guided by the hand of God. For as Brunson went on to say, God was involved. It makes no sense that they held me as long as they did. But then I look at the worldwide prayer movement that started 
and the number of people involved and their geographical distribution. It's astounding. He received photos of churches in Brazil praying, heard stories of churches in Iran doing likewise. A house church network in China printed one million brochures featuring his imprisonment and how to pray. It was very moving to hear that Chinese and Iranian believers, and I've mocked this, who have suffered so much, were praying for me, says Andrew. I felt so very unworthy. And Noreen adds, when I would come to visit him, I would keep telling him, God is in this. Quote, unquote. In the midst of your trials, you need a Noreen in your life to come along and remind you God is in it. Quote. Unquote. There's Job and he's at the ash heap. Little does he realize that the result of his suffering is that he will impact people globally and that he will impact people generationally. Generation by generation, as they pondered the significance of how someone in the midst of adversity would be able to remain loyal to his Lord. So this morning, we're back at it, and now as we are looking at chapter 19 in particular, 18 and 19 in general, what I want to do with you is to draw up two significant tensions we find here in these verses. Maybe tensions that you deal with, experience in your own life, that I think will better equip you to be able to create your own prelude to Easter, to allow for you to take the challenges you experience in life and point people towards the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the first comes out of verse 1 through 12 in this 19th chapter. And we're going to put it like this, is that you and I, as we ponder human sufferings, I want you to first of all note with me the tension here between the present and the future by considering the adversities that you and I, we experience through life. And now these adversities come on strong in Job's experience. He's in round two of the give and the take of his counselors. They become his thorns in the flesh. And their words are painful. And he picks up on it in chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. When he answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces? with words. Words are meant to be tools to work with, not weapons to fight with. And so often what we find in the gallery of experiences of adversity is that those that are going through difficult times are needing words that will lift them up rather than tear them down. We become responsible for our words, don't we? And we've got to be very careful that we use our words in such a way that they are constructive, not destructive, in the way in which we're working with people in the midst of the ash heaps of their own life experiences. Who's your job this morning? And who needs words that are constructive rather than destructive? And so Job now is worn down. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with these words, you see? And the words they used are, they stand out in the 18th chapter as the second of the trio of the counselors used words 
to try to argue his points. He would use figures of speech in chapter 18, verse 5, such as the light of the wicked's put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light dark imagery. And then he would use the trap snare imagery of verse 9. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare uh, lays hold of him. But the real dagger is in 13 and 14. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. You can imagine the immediate reaction of Job when he thinks about his lost children who have passed away. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He's torn from the tent in which he's trusted, brought to the king of terrors. This man is arguing his point, you see, that Job must be guilty because Job is suffering. But as we said last week, as we continue to build week by week a house of wisdom on how to be able to withstand the challenges of life that come our way, the book of Job is filled with assumptions. Job's counselors make assumptions that Job is guilty. Job, on the other hand, is making assumptions that God is involved in these catastrophes directly. All have the understanding of the sovereignty of God, but few have the ability to make applications of how sovereignty works. So his counselor's assumption is that the reason for suffering is being hidden by Job. The reality is the reason for suffering is being hidden from Job. And that might be the challenge for you and for me as well. There might be some who say, but you are, you're, you're hiding things. You're not transparent. You're not open enough as you're wounded at your own hash heap. But the reason for suffering in their mind was that the issue is being hidden by Job. The reality is, is that the reason for suffering was being hidden from Job. He had not read chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Job. Which tells me then that you and I, when we are experiencing hardships in life, may not be privy to the sum total of the cosmic conflict that's taking place past as well as present. And how all this fits together so that like an Andrew Brunson in Turkey, or like you and me right now in Sheboygan County, We've got to think seriously of the way in which our words and our responses to adversity impact others' lives. He goes on, he's still talking about these supposed counselors. These ten times you've cast reproach upon me, and you're not ashamed to wrong me, and they're wronging him. And even if it be true that I've erred, my error remains by, with myself. And if indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, I know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his tent about me. Assumption here about God, as they make an assumption about Job. So now, how do you respond to people who seem to be attacking you? And there's accusations and there's assumptions. Well, my mind goes back to still another story about Lincoln. His biographer says that as a struggling lawyer, Lincoln was employed on a, an important case. And catching a glimpse of him, one of the strategic lawyers in the nation at that time said, get rid of him. 
I will not be associated with such a gawky ape as that, quote unquote. As the trial, and here we are back to trials again, as the trial got underway, Lincoln was ignored. And the lawyer who had cruelly insulted him brilliantly defended his client and won the case. Fast forward. Time passed. Abraham Lincoln becomes president of the United States. And the biographer says here, among his most outspoken critics was the lawyer who had sorely wounded him. But Lincoln never forgot that the lawyer of the brutal words was also the lawyer of the brilliant mind. And so when he was looking for a man for the vital post of Secretary of War, he chose Edwin Stanton, the one who had wounded him and insulted him verbally, words which had been known around the nation. But only a man of Lincoln's character and forgiving spirit could have risen above Stanton's insults. And so the biographer tells us later, Lincoln lay dying, the victim of an assassin's bullet. And when Lincoln's eyes finally closed in death, it was Edwin Stanton who was filled with such intense grief that he would say, quote, Now this great man belongs to the ages. Quote, unquote. There's something about time. Time puts even the adversities of life in perspective. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Job would ask in verse 2. He has suffered materially. He has suffered physically. He has suffered relationally, the loss of his children. Now he suffers verbally. Where does he go from here? And what can you and I learn from this as we link Lincoln, Brunson, to what Job has just uttered? If there's a lesson here in 1 through 6, it's this. Trust God. Even when the attacks seem unending. Now maybe the attacks are physical upon your body medically. Maybe it's vocational. Things aren't working out. You've heard bad news from your employer. But whatever the case is, people day in, day out experience the losses of life. Brunson did as well. But out of all of this, what you and I have got to do is to extract life principles. So you and I, in 1 through 6, trust God, even when attacks seem unending. But out of 7 through 12, it's a second life principle. Trust God, even when life seems unfair. For you see now, in verse 7, here is Job, and he's now directing himself away from the horizontal attacks from his friends, and now it's a vertical challenge to God. Behold, I cry out violence. I'm experiencing violence here. I'm being abused. But I'm not answered. I'm not getting a hearing. Let's try it again. I call for help. But there's no justice. Someone to right the wrongs. 
What he's doing now is that once again he's elevating you and me into the cosmic courtroom. He's longing for that defense attorney to step in and argue his case before the cosmic judge of this universe. Who is he? Where do we find him? Where do we go? He's struggling at this point. It seems all has darkened. He has walked, he has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. Look at the next figure of speech. There's all throughout the book of Job. He has set darkness upon my paths. Now, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And you and I know that the imagery of dark and light is a very pronounced imagery throughout the Bible itself. Thought goes back to a biography of Helen Keller and her tutor. Because really it was a drama of darkness. One of the world's most renowned women was Helen Keller. Prodigy who lived, became famous without sight or sound. But Helen Keller had another self, another half, the biographer tells us. Ann Sullivan was born at Feeding Hills, Massachusetts, in poverty, in affliction, and was half blind. Her mother died, and she went over the hill to the poorhouse, as they described it then. But then at the Perkins Institute for the Blind, a brilliant operation restored her sight. And she devoted herself then to the care of the blind. Meanwhile, down south, a baby was born. A girl destined after her childhood never to see or speak or hear. Helen Keller. The biographer says she came under the care of Annie Sullivan, and in two weeks, Annie Sullivan taught her 30 words, spelling them by touching her hand. And under this system, Helen Keller rose to renown globally. Teacher and pupil remained inseparable for 49 years. Time came when misfortune befell on Sullivan. What was it? She became blind. And now, turn about. Helen Keller taught her how to overcome her darkness. So she schooled her former teacher as devotedly as she herself had been schooled until finally Helen Keller stood at the deathbed of Ann Sullivan and when all was said and all was done, she said, I pray for strength to endure the silent darkness until she smiles upon me in the light of glory. And you see that. And here you have a Job. Notice the assumption. His critics are making assumptions about Job. Job's making assumptions about God. And he starts to think that job, that God has become Job's greatest critic. He's walled up my way. I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths, but he's making an assumption here. And he has not brought the evil one into his mindset that maybe there is another way to approach this whole matter of suffering in his own personal experience. Likewise for you and likewise for me. When you're trying to figure out the cause and effect dynamics, when you're facing the challenges of life, don't become overly restrictive. It's got to be this and this only. There's a cosmic struggle here. 
Meanwhile, he continues on. He's got his fingers pointing in the direction of, of the heavens and towards God. He has stripped from me my glory, taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I'm gone. My hope has he pulled up like a tree. There's imagery here. Powerful imagery. Because he had earlier stated that when he saw a downed tree, a felled tree, there were saplings that had emerged. Signs of life in the midst of death. So now, what you've extrapolated so far out of verses 1 through 12 are two life principles. Verses 1 through 6 in matters of adversity. You trust God, even when the attacks seem unending. How long is the question of verse 2? But the life principle out of 7 through 12? Trust God. Even when life seems unfair. And when you reach that point in time, now you're ready to tie together the adversities that you and I experience through life with number 2, the certainties we possess through life of verse 23 through 27. Now, as I'm reading in the Hebrew from verse 23, which you and I have got to bear in mind at this point, when you see the O, it appears not once, not twice, but three times. And it's meant to be a heavy exhale. It's meant to be something like this. Oh, you see. It's as if he's trying to get his breath Say something, and then, oh, a second time, and then, oh, a third time. This is where he's at. So much intense loss. Intensive combined with extensive. Oh, that my words were written. Ah, Job, your words are written. Bear in mind that when you're facing adversities in life, this is God's way of putting a microphone to your lips. And Andrew Brunson's not going to fully comprehend how his imprisonment and the sufferings that he endured there were such that he would have a global impact. And Job might not understand how at his ash heap he's going to have a generational impact that people are going to be reading his words. At this point, he's been longing for, for an opportunity to plead his case in the cosmic courtroom. Oh, that my words were written. A second awe. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, Job, you're in the book. But then a third oh, oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Now what Job wants is for his words of protest at this point. To be chiseled in a rock, to be filled with lead, so that by generation after generation after generation, his words of protest could be read. 
this is unfair. How do I understand this? Something has not been fully disclosed. What's interesting is that if you and I made our way to Iran, in the Zagros Mountains region of Iran, there's a similar inscription by King Darius, who's mentioned in the Bible of the Older Testament. 500 feet above the plain in the Zagros Mountains of Iran are similar inscriptions by that ancient king. Archaeology always stands up for the scriptural teachings. But now, after that threefold exhale of wording, look what comes next. This is your prelude to Easter. In the midst of your adversity, bring in your certainty. There's your life principle from this entire chapter. Out of your adversity, bring in your certainty. It begins this way. For I know. He doesn't say, I assume now. He doesn't say, well, it's possible that. No. What I want you to know, first of all here, is that there is what we might call a certain faith. And you say, well, he's just uttered some very extreme things. He's made assumptions about God as they've made assumptions about Job. When the great Christian scientist, Michael Faraday, was dying, some journalists asked him about his speculations for life after death. From his biography, speculations, exclamation point, he said, I know nothing about speculations. I'm resting on certainties. I know that my Redeemer lives now. Not only then is this a certain faith. Second of all, notice with me, this is a personal faith. It does not say, I know that the Redeemer lives. No. It says, I know that my Redeemer lives. The word Redeemer appears 44 times in your Older Testament. It carries with the idea to lay a claim to a person in order to set them free. Now at this point, Job is longing to be set free from this bodily imprisonment that he finds himself in at this juncture within his own life experience. But the Apostle Paul will put it this way, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what he's looking for. He needs a redemption of the body. So he's He's now making a statement of certainty in the midst of adversity. This is a, a certain faith I know. This is a personal faith. I know that my Redeemer. But thirdly, what I want you to see here 
is that this is a living faith. I know that my Redeemer lives. Right now, we've got friends from this congregation, at least four people from the congregation in Israel this weekend. And this is a powerful time to be in Israel in general, in Jerusalem in particular, Palm Sunday, movements down the Via Dolorosa, and so on. Well, in the midst of your time in Israel, I want you to be transported back with me to my time in October there, where I'm standing in the region of the Garden Tomb. The Garden Tomb. And this is the setting where Joseph of Arimathea would have set aside in the riches that he had a tomb. A tomb that had been established really for his family, for himself. Now you've got to understand then how self-sacrificial this is, how significant this is, that he would give what was most significant for Jesus Christ, who had died. Now, the body has been anointed. It has been laid within the tomb. You're standing there, and you're waiting for your turn to be able to enter that tomb. The tour guides at the garden tomb are employed by the Church of England. And gifted teachers... And they will stand there and explain to you the significance of this tomb. And you're pondering the moment in which you're going to enter, you're going to step up, you're going to go through the door, and then you're going to go down. And as you move from outside into the inside, what will you see? Look what comes next. You'll stand there and gaze. As once again now, Here's the garden tomb, and here's how the body would have been laid. Peter, John, they would come into that tomb through that entrance that you and I had pondered, made their way down. They would be speculating, they would be processing, they would be reflecting because the body is not present. The tomb is vacant. I can see the two of them now as they are beginning to think this through. What does this mean? How do you explain this? How do you process this? But you and I know that there is a story to be understood. And look at the sign that appears on that door to the tomb. He is not here. For he is risen. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he had the opportunity, with a half grid, I've got to believe it, on his face, of walk with some disciples who were utterly perplexed as to what's happened because they had observed the crucifixion of Christ, but then been told uh, about the prospects of resurrection. And they were struggling with understanding the significance of it all. In other words, they had a tension of adversity as compared to certainty. And so Jesus would say to them in Luke chapter 24, as the physician tells us, all foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Get this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that would have included Job chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives. This is powerful stuff. He longs for redemption. The Apostle Paul will speak of the redemption of the body in Romans 8. So now you have worked your way through the I know that my Redeemer, or literally the Goel in the Hebrew, the kinsman Redeemer. For you see, a Goel was someone of a family who would enter into a situation, let's say when a husband died and the widow could not pay off the debts, he then would enter into the court experience and pay off the debt and serve as the kinsman redeemer. Now, the goel here, and that's the Hebrew word that Job is utilizing at this point, it could most likely have been the very teachings Jesus would have delivered on the road to Emmaus as he's challenging them regarding the understanding of resurrection as taught in the Older Testament. That he, Jesus Christ, was the goel who paid off the debt to set the prisoner free. This is powerful. As now Job is viewing himself as imprisoned in this body. He says, for I know certainty, certain faith, my Redeemer, personal faith, lives, living faith. And then you read on, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. At the last refers to that great final day of judgment, when all the righteous causes are confirmed as true. But notice furthermore the phrase here, on the dust he shall stand. At the last he will stand upon the earth, literally from the Hebrew, on the dust he'll stand. He takes his stand. Again he is using a legal term here. It's as if he's saying, I want you now to examine the evidence in the, in the global courtroom and evaluate very carefully this idea of the living Redeemer. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. He fully believes in bodily resurrection. This is what Jesus Christ would have been referring to on the road to Emmaus. This is astounding stuff. After my skin has been thus destroyed. Off to the side of verse 26. Right in Job chapter 2. Verse 4. For you see in that cosmic conflict. In chapter 2. The evil one said to God. Skin for skin. 
All that a man has, he'll give for his life. And what God is now doing is he's taking the testimony of a man who demonstrates certainty in the midst of adversity and turns tables, skin for skin. Listen, in the cosmic realm, after my skin's been destroyed and yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold not another. And now you're pulling it all together here, and he's viewing bodily resurrection and how all this relates to his own personal experience. My heart faints within me. He's just so overwhelmed by it all. What overwhelms you in your own adversity? Realizing that he would soon be leaving, D.L. Moody said to a friend, Someday you're going to read in the papers that D.L. Moody of Northfield is dead. Don't you believe it? For at that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone higher. That is all. Out of this old clay tenement and into a house that is immortal, a body that cannot sin, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned into his glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. And it's in the midst of the adversities of life that what you and I need to do is to bring the certainties of a living Redeemer to the forefront of all it is that you and I are experiencing day in, day out in the challenges that come our way. And that's what keeps Andrew Brunson going. God was involved. And it makes no sense that they held me as long as they did, considering the price they paid, says Andrew. But then I saw the photos. Churches in Brazil praying. Heard stories of churches in Iran doing the same. A house church network in China printed one million brochures featuring imprisonment, how to pray. It's very moving to hear that Chinese and Iranian believers who have suffered so much were praying for me. I felt so unworthy until his wife kicks in. But Andrew, God is in this. And he smiles and nods his head. I have a living redeemer. And that's what gave me hope. And so no matter what you're facing today through the adversities of life, there's your certainty. We have this living Redeemer. He lives. Let's stand together. So Father, we're thanking you now. This is, this is life. We don't, we don't isolate the resurrection from the challenges and the difficulties and the adverse, adversities of life. Here's a man who's hurting. Here's a man who's struggling. Here's a man who's experienced loss. But he brings certainty into his adversity.
So for anybody here who is struggling, I pray right now that they will see their struggle and lie to the fact that the tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Job's story is a prelude to Easter. And as we examine the evidence, Father, I pray that we leave here this morning with this utter, utter certainty. I know my Redeemer lives. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.